Presumably, what is stuck in our heads is this. <laughs> <laughs> And welcome to this special supplemental episode of Did You Do Your Homework? I am one of your co-hosts, Martha Sullivan, and I am here as always with my co-host. I'm Pete Romberg. Uh, and as promised, this is less of a full episode and more of an addendum to our Edgar Allan Poe episode. We are going to be talking about and spoiling a great deal of The Fall of the House of Usher, Netflix's new 2023 project from the mind of... Mike Flanagan, who has... <laughs> Your boy. My boy. I am so deep in the pocket of Mr. Flanagan that I've built a little house here. It's quite comfortable. <laughs> uh, does the house have a, a, a crack in its facade from the eaves down to the foundation as it looks over a mirror? I hope, hopefully it looks not. over a what? A mirror. I, I think that's a, a tarn, perhaps. A pool. I'm doing a house what of usher bit. What is a tarn? What are you? What are these words you're saying? A tarn is a small mountain lake, and it is a word definitely used in the fall of the House of Usher, the short story. Ugh. <laughs> I would make a crack here about. Do you think that I've ever read that? But <laughs> we know that I have. <laughs> like, I, I believe you read it within the last two weeks. <laughs> Listen, as far there, as the, you know yeah right the only reason this word is in my vocabulary <laughs> right now is because i reread that story in the last two weeks fair enough <laughs> i only read the abridged version <laughs> I, I love the idea of abridging any of poe's short stories like it's an eight story it it's eight it's eight pages yeah. long <laughs> yeah it's two paragraphs <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, right up at the top, we are going to be spoiling um, up through the penultimate episode of this show, because neither of us have seen the finale yet. But this is your warning right at the top. Nothing in those first seven episodes is off the table. So, just so we're aware. Uh, first, Pete, I want to ask you, last time we spoke, you alluded to the way that the show um, was structured. Were you referring to the episode titles and each each episode kind of being a reference? Not kind of, each episode being a reference to a specific post story? Yeah, and specifically the structure of each episode is we're killing off a, an usher child using the... With reference to that specific post story. Um, and that Carla Gugina is playing some malevolent... Raven-esque spirit that is, you know, masterminding all this uh, death and destruction. Yeah, so how is that How is that working for you? I'm generally enjoying it. It is fun to get an episode title right at the top, at, you know, like uh, Murder in the Rue Morgue, and be like, all right, so this is probably going to be chimp-related. Um... But honestly, I, I thought that was going to be the episode uh, where um, uh, Tania Miller got off because she was on working with Chimp. So there were nice, you know, um, changes throughout, or, you know, like uh, curveballs and, and surprises throughout. Um, the problem is I care far more about some of these children than others, and they offed some of the more interesting ones earlier on, so that by the end when we're left just with Frederick, I, I guess I'm realizing they offed them in the reverse birth order. 
I think. It's birth order, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and the problem is Frederick is the least interesting one until the Pit and the Pendulum episode, uh, the, the seventh episode. Um, and so there was a lot of me just being like, ugh, this guy is still alive. Okay, well, whatever. Um, whereas, like, we kill off fun party boys early on. Uh so that 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 was my my only critique was the the more interesting and and legitimately the more messed up ones or at least more like uh you know messed up on the surface uh get off early and that's that you know leads to a sort of lack of frisson later on but by that point you're sort of sucked into the uh like the machinations of this like the overall story so I, I guess it's a clever move of having like the most uh, on the surface, depraved ones killed early because you're sort of spending more time with them, getting interested in them, so that by episode five or six, you're more interested in the overarching story. So it's cool that they're less, you know, for me at least, vaguely less interesting characters who are still hanging out. Um, how about for you? I had read yeah. those reviews, so I knew that that was generally the structure, whereas you were going in basically totally blind. Um, I found it delightful at how literal they all are mm -hmm. i feel like there is a way that flanagan could have made this show where like the title of the stories are references or like alluded to in some way but no they are very literal and <laughs> right, i appreciated like, that <laughs> mask of the red death we're murdering at a party murder in the room morgue it's a chick you know uh, i was gonna say that that one was the one that really got me is like oh yeah they're just they're just gonna do that. Cool. <laughs> Tell, Telltale Heart. That was a fun twist, having it be like the uh, uh, the artificial heart, the mechanical heart. I, I, it's almost like a peacemaker uh, by the the design of it. Yeah, that um, one. That episode was so sad. Yeah. Um. But no, I think I think you're exactly right. I think it was it was a bummer to lose my favorite actors in the series so early. Um, but I do think it's important because we are sort of going, we're both going in reverse birth order, but also like Prospero, Camille and, uh, Napoleon all wear their vices so much yes. more on their sleeves. Yes. And then Tamerlane and Roderick or, and Frederick are like, but they it is it's such a combination of like carrying themselves like they're better than mm -hmm. their half siblings because like Tamerlane and Roderick are Frederick. Ugh, it's on. I purpose, mean, it's it's yeah, and, and also like they they call him like Froderick throughout because it's like oh you're so much like Dad, haha, uh, or like Dad basically called um, you himself. But yeah, like they are so much. They they act like they are so much better than their half siblings, who are um, Roderick's children, but all by different mothers. Mm -hmm. And Tamerlane and Frederick uh, are the children of his first and of his first wife. And for um, the longest time only, he has recently married um, for reasons that I that that are not very well explained, other than maybe PR. Uh, but it feels late in life for him to be doing like a PR wedding. Uh, I, I think there are there are a couple of things that the show sort of doesn't care to delve too deeply into. 
Um, I think the end of that, I think the end of the second to last episode sort of takes a stab at that, but it's kind of, it's kind of dumb. But yeah, overall, I'm having so much fun. I love, I think part of what that literalness of the titles on the episode subjects does I mean, this show has no room or time for subtlety. Uh, and also, Flanagan like, is not really a subtle filmmaker. He, I would push back on that very, very hard. Hmm. But he, he's a guy who likes his monologues, and monologuing is not a, a form for subtlety per se. Well, and I guess we can make a distinction here between subtlety and nuance. I do think he is a very nuanced storyteller. Sure, absolutely. I don't think this story, I don't think this particular project of his has a lot of nuance. I think I'm fine with that. I also think it makes it not as strong, um, ultimately for me, as something like Midnight Mass, which I think is basically perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also don't think that this, I think this series has different goals. Right. Um, I think that Flanagan is at his absolute best when he is telling a story that has a stronger emotional core to it than this does. Um, I think that for this project, that's a feature, not a bug. But I, I do think that it kind of necessarily means that this one is not going to be as impactful for me as like a Midnight Mass or a Hill House. Yeah, this this um, show definitely is leaning hard on the capital R romantic and the gothic na- nature of Poe, and I and that's totally fine. It's doing that. It's doing exactly that. But it's also it's almost a little overstuffed. We have the like the ushers are ba- basically the Sacklers, which feels a little bit like hey, Poe might have done opium or at least referred to opium in his stories. Modern day opium is painkillers. So that's a connection. But then we're like telling a story of like the Sacklers and like the, you know, the opioid epidemic in America and also a capital R romantic gothic, uh, you know, downfall. Everyone get everyone is evil and or everyone is bad and gets their comeuppance uh, and some innocents uh, fall along the way as well. Uh, kind of story and it it is I, I i think it's a little scattershot for what he's trying to do there but it's still a very enjoyable show yeah it has a lot of moving parts especially when you consider that every episode like it is one story but every episode is also very self-contained mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so like I I am enjoying it very, very much on like an episode by episode basis. And I wonder if at the end I will feel that it is that it is something where the parts are greater than the sum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could definitely see that being the case. Um, I, I will say it has been forever and a day since I've seen Mary McDonnell and I am loving her in this. Uh, does she, she play Madeline? Yes, she does. Um and I, oh, she's incredible. I know her from Battlestar Galactica, where she played uh, Rosalind, uh, the um, oh. yeah, the the former uh, education secretary who ends up being like the president of humanity. Uh, and I don't think I've seen her in anything else, you know. I and I didn't watch Battlestar Galactica super seriously, mm-hmm. so I did not make that connection immediately. But no, she's great. Yeah. Um, I love a, I love an evil lady. 
Yeah, and like whether and she's evil, I get a lot or... of them in this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the the fun part about her is that whether she's playing evil or good, she's always very steely in a a way that is delightful to watch. Her presence is always just fantastic. Like once in, in Battlestar, once she's sort of like coming to her own as a leader. Um and and in this, when she's like trying to become immortal through AI. <laughs> um I also want to give a shout out to Tania Miller, who plays uh Victorine, the uh the i guess surgeon uh working on the uh the telltale heart implant she's not a she's not a surgeon right and that's why i was sort of struggling like is she just she's in surgery with her partner who is a surgeon so she has to have some medical experience but is she just the business like head i think uh, so so in um in the in the uh murder I think it's in the Murder on the Rue Morgue episode uh, where Camille gets it. Yeah. Um, Camille has a scene where she is, uh, Camille is played by the luminous Kate Siegel, whose wig is the craziest thing I've ever seen, and I'm obsessed with it. Props <laughs> um, uh, Flanagan, to Flanagan for killing off his wife like three episodes in instead of waiting till the end to kill her off. Uh, I was a, I was bummed about that though. She was great. She was great. She she was one that I was very uh, sad to see, um, you know, knocked off so early because she was so messed up in a delightful way. Well, and she has that scene on the couch with Rahul Kohli, who plays her brother Napoleon, where she's talking about how none of the ushers make anything like. He has this thing, he says something about how, like, I make video games. And she's like, you don't. You mm -hmm. give other people money to do it. Like, and none of us actually make anything. And I don't create anything. I just spin the information. So I think that um, with Victorine, like, she's the funding, basically. Like, she's maybe the idea person, but I, I don't think she's... Um, if she has medical training at all, it's probably cursory. Hmm. Okay. Um. Re regardless, I I liked her character a lot because I. In the first few episodes, it was the vibe of like, ah, you're just like a dedicated, driven individual who's like maybe gonna fudge some stuff to like you know, get get things past the FDA sooner. But that's that's how the game is played. But by the end, it's like, oh no, you are just as messed up as the rest of your siblings. Um. In in your well, own unique and way. It's very interesting to see uh, Roderick, like the scenes from Roderick's past, how those play out in such a similar fashion to what she ends up doing, mm -hmm. um, like faking the paperwork and stuff. Uh, it feels like a very purposeful echo of, um, you know, what what he what what Fortunato ends up getting caught doing, and what he kind of aids and abets, right. Um, I, I do, now that I have brought in the flashback sequences, I like Zach Guilford a lot, and I don't think he is right in this role. I think that he is, I can't tell if it's a him problem or a script problem, but he is such a different character than Bruce Greenwood's older Roderick. 
And I was expecting to see more of an evolution over the course of the show. And granted, I haven't seen the last half of the penultimate episode, or of course the final episode, so maybe something happens there, but he is too... Like, yeah, we, we just don't he's see... Too I, weak. He, he's too sweet, he's too weak, and like, we see him learning the lessons that he then like uses later. Like, there's a fun bit where he, where Bruce Greenwood has some line about like, I want everyone lining up behind me. I'm the captain of this ship. All I want to hear from you is like, sir, yes, sir. And then later in that same episode, we hear uh, Griswold, his boss, say, give him the exact same speech back in the 70s. That's a cool bit. So we see that's where he got it from. But we don't see him actually putting any of that into practice in the past. And that's, I think, what's missing is that he, his arc in the past, from what I've seen so far, is too, too static and if he then drops off the deep end, you know, in the last episode or so, then that's too abrupt of a, you know, of a change. Here's my question to you. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think his casting would have worked better if Frank Langella had had stayed in the role of Roderick? I don't think it's a problem with older Roderick. I, I like Bruce Greenwood just fine. I think it's a problem with young Roderick. And... Oh, no. I think Bruce Greenwood is fantastic and i think it it kind of blows my mind to know that he was a last minute addition yeah um and that they had to rework like two months of filming (laughs) after frank langella was a garbage human yeah and mike flanagan said not on my watch yes um i'm just wondering if i buy zach guilford as a young frank langella more than i buy him as a young um bruce greenwood because bruce greenwood has a sort of steely authoritarianism that I don't know that Frank Langella would have brought to the role. It, it just, it makes me, I, I wonder if Zach Guilford was cast when they had a different actor for Roderick. I'm, I'm certain And if that is. would have made more sense. I, I'm certain he was cast uh, with, a, with a different actor in mind, but I think part of the problem is the script and not, I mean, like, it could be the actor too, just not, like, translating so well. Um, but I, I think it's also the script, is that he is too like too passive and too weak in a way that we see older older Roderick not um and i and i don't part part of that is is the actors but part of that is the script you know yeah i we know at this point um i haven't seen the finale yet so like i no, no one's been cask of amontillado yet, and I feel like that's <laughs> we keep, coming. <laughs> we keep staring at a wall, so I'm and hearing and hearing a little bell uh-huh. jingling gently. <laughs> so, so I'm waiting. <laughs> um, well, and as you said, the another brick in the wall needle drop from episode one made me lose my mind. <laughs> right, like thirty seconds into this show, and we're dropping Pink Floyd's another brick in the wall during a montage. I'm like, all right, well. I'm in for a good time. This show knows exactly what it's about, and it's going to tell me that right away. Um, but yeah, I have I have been enjoying... I mean, the flip side to getting more of Tamerlane and Frederick is that uh, Samantha Sloyan and Henry Thomas mm-hmm. are both great. Uh, e- former and... uh, E.T. boy himself, Henry Thomas. Yes. Um, yeah. And watching their sort of particular brand of awful develop has really been, um, it has really been something to watch. I mean, 
Frederick has fully lost his mind. Yeah, and up until um, up until point. the penultimate episode, I was not so into him. But now that he has fully lost his mind and, you know, the nose candy probably helping, um he is he has become a more interesting character, which is good because he's the last one left. Uh and obviously will die by the end of the uh the penultimate episode. It's so good. It's so good. I can't wait because um, it's called the Pit and the Pendulum, and I've I've seen uh, a vision of child him be cut in half. So I'm like, all right. So I guess we're getting cut in half say, somehow. You did hear, you did hear Roderick refer to it as Freddy's C-section. <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> um, I. Did you do? Have you gotten to the point in the? Have, you can you can ask. And it's something. so watching him and his wife, who was at the Mask of the Red Death party back in episode two, who's the only survivor after getting all of her skin burned off. Burned off, yeah. Um, has really been the catalyst for Freddy's uh, descent. Yeah. into craziness. Um, he does something particularly horrifying to yes. her in this yes. episode. I did okay. see that. Okay. Um, that was, I was glad they cut away yes. from that. I'm, I'm at this point worried of what's going to happen with Lenore because we keep throughout the show, we keep getting, she's texting or calling Roderick. And she's clearly involved, like, you know, she's, she's the smart genius, and uh, Madeline was trying to upload her consciousness into the, you know, gestalt AI infinity machine that she's creating, uh, immortality machine. So I'm desperately worried that she's dead, but her consciousness is in a computer, and that's what's texting Roderick. Uh, and that would be very disappointing, because she is sort of an innocent in all of this. And, um, you know, she's like, just doing her best. Right. And it's like, you, you could argue that like her mom, you know, quote unquote, sinned by going to the, the orgy rave. Uh, even if she didn't do anything there, she's still, you know, by going, that was the, the thing that, and I know I'm sort of sliding into like horror movie tropes where like those who are bad get punished. Um, but that's, I feel like that's a Poe trope as well often. Um, and it's the medium that we're working with. Right. Exactly. So it would be. I'm I'm curious what happens to Lenore, partly because, and, and also to be honest, what what happened to um, Annabelle Lee, uh, Roderick's first wife. Um, I'm wondering if she's the one in the wall, um, because both of them would sort of break the rule of the guilty are punished, but not the innocent, right? Because they are the, you know, they, they are they are they are held up as the only good ushers. Um, so it would be interesting if they are also, you know part of the fall because in theory the whole house has to fall you know right like can't have any survivors um well and yeah that is interesting because up until now we know that roderick and uh madeline made some sort of deal with a supernatural carlo gugino who is luminous <laughs> yes in this i feel like i just used that word to describe kate siegel but she's incredible um yeah, they made some sort of deal with her, but we don't know what the details of that are yet. Um, 
But I do know by the end of that penultimate episode, you do know that kind of what the terms or the consequences of it are. Mm. Uh, and it's a very blood in, blood out situation. Mm. Mm. Yeah, Madeline tries to renegotiate. I'm, and... I'm sure that goes well. <laughs> I just love that she thinks that she can. But that that is so in line with that character, which is also why I love, you know, oh, no. I, she's one of my favorites, both characters and because she's being played by Mary McDonald. But like, oh, yeah, no, I'm obsessed with her. Yeah. Like, the more that you find out how actually, like, deeply evil she is, it's so good. Yeah. And it's like all, all three of the versions who play her, right? Or I guess there are four versions who play her uh, are all doing a great job at it. Um well, and one of the things I really love about how Flanagan is telling the story is that, like, it could have been set up as a, like, circumstances made her. Because, like, when she and Roderick are growing up in the, what is it, the 60s, the 70s? Probably growing um, up in the 60s, because then when they're adults, they're in their 70s. I, I guess it's a bit of a how old okay. do we think they are? But like she's well, and I, I believe that the New Year's Eve that is like the pivotal night is like seventy nine to eighty. Yes, that's correct. Okay, so like there could have been, they could have made, like built it into her character that like she is a woman. She is a very smart, very capable women growing up at a time that is not friendly to women who are those things. And the story definitely acknowledges that. Right. We, we get that scene with her and Griswold, but I don't think the, I don't think it blames that for who she became. Like, I think it's pretty clear that like, this is who she is. And I, I was glad that it, it doesn't try to make an excuse for her. Like, Oh, she did the best she could with what she was given. It's like, no, she made these choices. And and I, I think that it does that by giving us characters like Annabelle and Lenore, who are also smart and capable people, um, but do like make different choices. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And and we it helps to like we see her as that sort of like headstrong, the kind of person who would make those choices, even as a as a child, right? Like and then as a teen. So it it, it is a consistent through line of her character. Um, I love that everyone in this story is gay, and uh -huh. it's just sort of how it is, uh -huh. <laughs> or queer, I should say. Yeah. <laughs> I liked how the third episode, second or third episode, second episode, was the weird sex episode. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, both both the second and the third were kind of the weird sex episodes, right? Um, because like the, the Mask of the Red Death is obviously like the uh, the rave orgy, uh, but then um. Uh, Camille has her own, you know, uh, pro say, problematic relationship with learn... her uh, underlings. <laughs> yeah, it's like we learn about her arrangement with her PAs in the same episode that we learn about Tamerlane's oh, like uh, fetish? call girl, call girl habit. Yeah, yeah. What what is a is there a um, female cuckold version? Like, cause like, cause her her fetish is like having watching her husband have sex with other women. I I don't know. Right. It's First not, off, it's I'm not sure there's a term. 
But it's not even a cuckolding situation because she's having the call girls pretend to be her. So it's not it's not her husband cheating on her that she's getting off on. I actually wasn't sure if I got the vibe of of pretending to be her or just pretending to be, you know, a a nice domestic partnership sort of thing. Um Oh, no, I think it's specifically pretending I to be that, her. That's what sends her into the Well, and that's what that that's does what make sends sense her for into the gold like, bug. Yeah, Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, I think she has some line about, like, you know, falling for the cheap in- imitation. Like, she she references back to it when it's like, girl, this situation is exactly how you have engineered it <laughs> yes. to be. Yes. I think I liked her episode the least. I agree, and that's partly um, because I didn't care about her. Uh, you know, it's like... Uh, Frederick got sort of more interesting as he went from being, like, bland to crazy, where she just sort of started a little off and ended even more so, but it was never, like, in an interesting way for me. Yeah, I'm also just sort of tired of making fun of wellness culture. Like, it's a really, it's really low-hanging fruit Mm -hmm. for me, so, like, making her deal be that she's launching, like, a goop-style subscription lifestyle box was kind of like i guess and it like you know when you compare that to we're creating life-saving medical devices or we're creating an information empire you know it's it's a little uh the stakes are low for coming that this late in the show right like um uh, like Prospero's like, I don't know, I, I just want to have the greatest party in New York. It's like, all right, well, that's like the second episode. So sure, whatever. Napoleon's like, I don't even know what his deal is. Like video games, I guess, but we never see him do his job. We just see him do drugs. So it maybe oh, his... because I think what he's doing, I think he's an, I think drugs. he's an investor. I think he's an investor in video games. Right. Which is like also... he, he gives money to developers. Right. But he like in. In the show, we don't see him ever doing, like, his job in the show is drugs, right? Like, yes. He, so it's like, all right, whatever. That's his job. That's fine. Um, and then what else do you have? You have uh, life-saving medical devices, running the Fortunato Corporation, uh, being the spider in the middle of a, a massive information empire, and then life brand. Like, one of these things is not like the other, you know? Yeah, and like I said, it was just sort of like... I don't know. It felt boring and obvious. And also that kind of thing is a really easy way to make fun of something that is very specifically feminine. Mm-hmm. And I don't love the way that that feels. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, like lifestyle. Th- there is a lot to very legitimately make fun of for women who run like lifestyle brand stuff. But a lot of the criticism ends up being so gendered. I don't know. I can't unpack that right now. <laughs> <laughs> right. And and this and this show is not the show that's even trying to unpack it. It's just sort of like leaning into the, as you say, the low-hanging fruit of it. Yeah. Um, I was bummed that we couldn't find more space in, like, flashbacks to be able to spend more time with Camille and Napoleon and Prospero. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because again, like they're they're sort of the most interesting ones, uh, but 
that's it, again structurally it makes sense that you you introduce them early and then off them early but it does mean that you you off the more interesting ones early so well and especially because the offing itself is not a secret or a surprise mm-hmm, like we right. knew we knew kind of going in we know from square one that this is all happening so i feel like they could have maybe taken a little bit more time with it, but I also understand the structure of the show. I yeah, I don't I don't think you could have taken much more time with it without this being like a, a ten episode show, and I think at that point it would have felt very padded. Oh yeah, um, like I said, they would have had to change something fundamentally, and I I think that the structure of the deaths does make sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm so this is just me wishing for something that probably could not have happened within the bounds of the show that flanagan made (laughs) (laughs) right right exactly it's it's because i needed more of kate seal's bananas wig (laughs) there are some wigs in the show mary mcdonald's wig is uh interesting (laughs) um I just realized we have not even touched I was, I think on the I subject know what of Mark Hamill yet. Yes, yes. As I was saying Mary McDonald's wig, I was like, oh, we also need to talk about Mark Hamill. Um. <laughs> Who is doing truly incredible work here? I am loving it. I have never heard, like, I mean, obviously the, the man is a famous voice actor on top of being a famous normal actor. Um between Luke Skywalker, the Joker, and Wolverine, he was like the voice of my childhood. But I've never heard him down in this register before, um, and certainly not seen him while making voices like that. Uh, it's it's incredible. Yeah, he is playing the world's greasiest lawyer, and I love it so much. I- you have um, a little more lawyer experience than I do. There's a fun line at one point where someone's like, I, I think it's a Tania, um, Tania Miller's uh, uh, talking with her partner. It's like, you know, you have an NDA. I'm sure the NDA doesn't include illegal things. Like, ah, but it does. That's a a Pim Reaper special. I'm like, I don't think any NDA that covers illegal things would hold up in court for a second. Uh, oh, but, no, absolutely But it's a fun not. line. Um, and you, you also can't hold up anything that somebody signed while under duress. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But but it, it like it's the fun kind of thing where like I hear them like that's not how things work. But also that's a fun character <laughs> moment for the show, and it tells you what you need to know about like Mark Hamill's character is that this this lawyer is so good and evil that his NDAs even include illegal things. Well, and I do truly buy that the kids would have grown up just thinking that that's correct. Yeah, yeah. Because I I, I think ultimately it's not the power of the NDAs that has protected Fortunato. And the, the Usher family, it's the incredible amount of money that they can just throw at everything. Right. So, like, the NDAs could almost just be a sidebar. <laughs> and right. It's like, it's like yes, like, you signed an NDA. Also, we will pay you a lot of money to never talk about this again. And if you don't accept the money, yes. then you might disappear. And if you sue us, we'll outlast you. Uh-huh. Because suing people costs money. Yep. Yep. Um, no, I, yeah, every time, I kind of wish he got his own episode. Like, if they had also, if they had added an episode in that was, like, him mm. eating it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Because uh, there... I, I truly could have spent a whole episode in his pocket. There is a little, speaking of him eating it, there's a little side. The, the character that he's based on, Arthur Pym, is from a, uh, a Poe, like, long story? Um, I guess it's it's a straight-up novel. Um, uh, the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket uh, um, influenced Moby Dick and uh, Jules Verne. Um, but in the book, uh, Arthur Pym, uh, and some other sailors are shipwrecked and have to eat one of their companions. Uh, and there's a line in the show where uh, Mark Hamill says like, oh, I'm having so-and-so over for dinner and sort of like licks his lips real quick. And the dude that he references is the dude that he eats in the book. So, uh, little, little Hannibal, Hannibal cannibal throwaway line there. And as Roderick is telling this whole story to the um, investigator who's been trying to take his family down since the flashbacks from the 70s, um, Roderick is telling him the history of Arthur Pym. And he's like, you know, and I, he went on this expedition and I like to think that he, uh, you know, discovered Lost Worlds and engaged in cannibalism and like all of the things that are actually in the Arthur Pym novel. Right, right. Found like um, secret caves in the in the center of the earth, and and the investigators like there are no caves in the center of the earth, <laughs> which which I thought was like, fun. Like damn, Augie, be a killjoy, jeez. <laughs> but also, it's like I need you to be. I I need to know that you know that there are no caves in the center of the earth. <laughs> <laughs> that is sort of the tenor of the conversation that the two of them are having. So, like the framing device for all of this is, yeah, I I is Frederick telling the story as a confession and he is increasingly like obviously unwell and Augie, the investigator every once in a while will say something where it's like, I need you to like blink twice or something. Like <laughs> yeah, tell me, yeah. you know that this is insane. Yeah. Um, so on your, on your scale of Flanagan's, where do you think this is going to fall? So the Flanagan's I've watched are Haunting of Hill House, Haunting of Bly Manor, the first, I don't know, four episodes of Midnight Mass, and then, you know, the first six and a half episodes out of eight of this one. Um, I'm, I'm going to discount Midnight Mass just because I never got, like, deep enough into it to, to have a, a strong take on it. I think Bly Manor is the weakest. Um, I'm enjoying this, but there was something about Hill House, both both its newness to me uh, and the wildness of the penultimate episode where you realize that, like, the hauntings are a, a temporal pincer movement. Um, <laughs> and also, like, the spooky ghosts in the background all the time. Uh... I, I think this and, and Hill House are fighting for top place, but I think I think Hill House will will edge it out. Um it's a little bit of a will this show stick the landing? Um that that could easily determine which way it goes. Uh I will say, other than uh, Carla Gagina, I don't really have a strong sense of any of the actors in Hill House. Like none of them stick in my mind terribly well. This one does have the benefit of being like Bruce Greenwood and um, Mary McDonald and Mark Hamill, uh, in addition to all the other people. Uh, like Tanaya Miller in Bly Manor, loved her in that. Uh, Rahul Kohli in Bly Manor, loved him in that. Um, so the acting, the actors and the acting in this definitely are sticking out more than 
um, Hill House did. Uh, that's my roundabout way of saying that this is fighting neck and neck for first place with Hill House, and we'll see if it sticks the landing. Uh, how about for yeah, you? I still and I think midnight. And and you I guys... still think that midnight mass is basically perfect. Right. Um. And, and you've also seen Doctor Sleep. Are you gonna include that in this list, or are you just talking about like his Netflix um, uh, miniseries? Um. I'm just talking about his Netflix miniseries. I've also I've seen Doctor Sleep. I've seen Ouija Origin of Evil, and I just watched mm. Absentia th- today, which is his first feature length movie. Did he do Oculus? Um. But I'm only. Yes. Okay. I, I have not I, seen Oculus. I did see Oculus. Cool. I have not seen Oculus because one of my very large nope, nope, nope horror movie triggers is stuff moving in mirrors that's not <laughs> accurately reflected in real life. <laughs> I I always as 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 a film guy, I always love that because I'm like, oh, how did they shoot that? Oh, oh my god, it makes me want to die. <laughs> See also paintings and photographs moving when they're not supposed to. P- painting makes photogra- me want to die. <laughs> that stuff is cool, but it mirrors specifically in film. I'm always like, all right, how did they shoot this? How did they like uh, uh, a few months ago, Martin and I watched a um Oh, I'm gonna this is this is very dumb because I'm gonna go deep in my letterbox to try to remember what movie this was. But it was like a movie from like the fifties or sixties, uh, or maybe even earlier. And they, they were doing some camera business with mirrors that I was just like, how? How how would you do this today, much less how would you do this, you know, back then? Um That rules. Um, yeah, so yeah, yeah so, so where do you put I, this? I still think Midnight Mass is basically perfect. Like that's my number one with a bullet. Um, I really want you to finish it so that we can talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I Midnight Mass or um, Haunting of Hill House still has some of the strongest single episodes of all of his stuff, like the Two Storms episode, the Bent Neck Lady episode. Like those are practically perfect television. The ending whiffs so hard for me mm-hmm. that it's really going to depend on. It, it just as you said, it's going to depend on the final episode for House of Usher because the tone of the last episode of Hill House threw me out of the story so hard, I felt like I left a Kool Aid Man imprint on the wall behind me. <laughs> uh, and I I fully agree with that. I I remember the penultimate episode so well, um, and then the the final episode, I'm like. I I guess there was another episode after that penultimate one, huh? Um, yeah, it's wild, um, and not in a good way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because that was so, like the red the the red room the 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 red door room that was all that business. Yeah, we find out that the red room we find out that all of the rooms that the kids have been using sort of separately are all the same room, um, and that that's kind of the nexus of the haunting. Yeah, and that the house like. We, we've sort of known that the house collects souls. That's the one where Timothy Hutton is like, I will commit suicide to keep my dead wife company. And the two groundskeepers are like, you can't demolish the house because the ghost of our dead daughter lives here. Um, and then it ends in like this very idyllically toned fashion where I'm like, are we saying this is good? Actually, I don't understand what's happening. Um <laughs> 
I, I remembered that the room was the nexus of the haunting, and I forgot everything else that you just said. Yeah, there's just, there's a lot where I was like, tonally, we were in one place, and now we're in another, and it feels like you just couldn't sustain um, the ideas that you sort of started with. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Bly Manor is more consistent than Hill House. Like, it doesn't quite have the lows of Hill House, but it also doesn't reach those high highs. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that is going to continue sitting pretty comfortably after wherever. Because I, I will say that even though Usher sort of lacks that deep emotional core from Midnight Mass that I love so much, I do think it is pretty consistent across the board in terms of, like, spectacle and tone and acting and yes, like yes. everything is pitched at 11 and that's where I want it to stay the whole time. <laughs> Flanagan has absolute control over the tone of the show. Um, and it's like that, then it becomes a question of, is that tone one that is, uh, that you are vibing with or not? Uh, because since, since that tone is, is so controlled, um, if it's not for you, it's not going to like, you're not going to like any of it. Um, yes, correct. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I think that's a good place to end. I, um, I do want to mention, I, short. I, I found it. Oh, uh, yeah. the, the movie I was thinking of is called The Best Years of Our Lives. It was the Best Picture winner for 1946, I think, or at least had multiple actors uh, win uh, Best Acting. Um, and yeah, there were some shots in mirrors in like a lady, like the ladies room uh, in a restaurant where it was just like, how did, how, how did this happen? There's, there's a camera somewhere. There has to be. <laughs> you know, but it's not showing up in these mirrors. Uh, it, it was a really good movie. Um, I've actually, I yeah. have, I have wanted to watch that since it ended up at the top of um, the screen drafts. It's like follow-ups, director's follow-ups to Best Picture. Because mm-hmm. this was William Wyler. Um, yeah. Right? Um, and it got vetoed three times because everyone kept trying to push it higher. <laughs> And it ended up at the top of the list. <laughs> so I have been thinking about it since yeah. since listening to that episode. It's long, but if you if you got the time for it, it's it's well worth a. I mean, it's 171 minutes, right? So like, it's long, but um, but it's good. Um, but yeah, I think that's a good place to call it. Um, I. Yeah, I will see everybody from my little pocket camp style house in Mike Flanagan's uh, Mike Flanagan's back, back pocket. <laughs> um, and I look forward to seeing how he lands this plane. I think whatever you want to say about Flanagan, I think he makes interesting and strong choices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, like, and, and you are obviously fully in his bag. I, I like what he does and I think it's interesting, but I'm not nearly as, uh, you know, in, uh, I, I'm not a, a Flanna guy, uh, in, in the same way that, that, that you might <laughs> a be a Flanna gal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but I, I, I'm always interested in what he's doing. Um, and we should say that this is his last, um, show with Netflix. I think he's moving on to Amazon. Is that right? yes okay yeah so yes they are um they are doing his next project i think that they are the one i think they're producing the um dark tower stuff oh i was gonna ask if his next project has been announced 
I'm on board with the Flanagan Dark Tower. That sounds interesting. We could get Idris back. Yeah, he's uh, got cool. two. He's got two king. He's got two king projects in the hopper. He has Dark Tower, um, which was on hold during the writer's strike, but I believe now can go back into development because they're still in the script phase. Mm-hmm. Um, so it doesn't clash with the SAG after a strike, which continues. Uh, and then he's also developing a story called The Life of Chuck, which I am not familiar with. Um, but, that, but which is also on another it's a king story hmm. yeah, it's one of his short stories and i just don't know anything about it sure sure uh yeah so we're gonna leave you guys with that with this epilogue that is maybe almost as long as um the yeah, original the, episode. the actual episode was like an hour 13 and this is going to be like 50 minutes so you know uh <laughs> uh you want to you want to tell people what we're doing next i i know we said it in the end of the last episode but we can double tap that fine yeah next time we're talking about wes anderson so we are doing a strong pivot <laughs> from Although I am going to, I'm going to make the pitch on that episode that Wes Anderson is making the most Americana works of any director in our current pop culture landscape. So just, just chew on that for a little bit. I um, don't think but yeah, I can So disagree. we're going to be talking about, yeah, we're going to be talking about his role doll adaptations, um, Asteroid City... French Dispatch? Is that the one I said I'd watch? Uh, you said you would watch French Dispatch, and I would rewatch Darjeeling. And we're going to talk, talk about his 2023 works, which is um, Asteroid City and his uh, Roald Dahl. You just said all this. Uh, but then also have a general, yeah. like, you know, we've seen most other Wes Andersons. We'll probably end up talking about it. Um, so, you know, it's a bit of a everything's on the table. But specifically, we're going to be looking at Darjeeling and uh, French Dispatch and then his stuff from this year. Yes. So join us next time for that. And also be sure to catch the Love Ya episode that I just recorded. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening and enjoy doing your homework. Class dismissed. Cool.